0: Today on The Scott Thompson Show on 900 CHML. Countless attacks uh, on the media by Donald Trump. The newspapers are fighting back. We're going to talk about that coming up in the second hour of The Scott Thompson Show. Canadian coffee chain second cup considering a smoky proposal. Uh, Can't sell coffee, sell some weed. They're looking at that. We'll touch on that coming up in the second hour of the show. Also, China has a problem of its own creation. Remember when uh, the whole one-child-per-family policy? Well, now their population is aging, and there's not enough kids for the future. That's what happens when you start to engineer society. Uh, We'll talk about that uh, coming up in the latter part of the show as well. We'll speak with Alan Cross, music journalist, uh, Aretha Franklin passing away uh, this morning at age 76. We'll touch on that to uh, finish the show. All right, as I mentioned, yesterday we heard the news that the Trudeau government is considering announcing a new statutory holiday. The holiday would uh, be to mark the legacy of the residential school system, uh, which was a recommendation, one of uh, almost 192, I believe, uh, recommended uh, recommendations in the Truth and Reconciliation Commission. Uh, what are your thoughts on this? Is it a great idea or great politics? Let's bring in Christo Avalis, Social Sciences and Humanity Research Council, postdoctoral fellow in history, University of Toronto. He is with us now. Christo, thanks so much for the time. As always, much appreciated. Thanks for having me. So what are your thoughts on all this, Christo?
1: I mean, I think, you know, it's it's certainly... I I think a valid policy approach. I mean, people might disagree or agree with it, but I don't think it's off the, off the mark. Totally. As you note, it's one of the things in the TRC recommendations and actually, you know, Trudeau during the election campaign did promise to implement all of the recommendations. So in a sense, this is kind of an election promise, you know, maybe not a top flight one, but it is in a sense, something he has a mandate for to do. Um, Mm -hmm. And I think that's, that's something that you could certainly talk about. And I think, you know, from a political perspective, I think it's popular. I think people like statutory holidays. One of the challenges with our economy over the last 40 years is that there hasn't been a whole lot of improvements for workers. And, you know, uh, and a lot of jobs, you know, 40, 50 years ago, you might get two weeks vacation and many Canadians today still only got two weeks. So one of the only ways some workers will get extra vacation days is if they get statutory holidays or you know, if they're not fortunate enough to have the day off, they'll at least you know get you know uh, a bit of a pay bump for having to work those days. So I think it's a pop, it's a popular political approach there. So I think it mixes you know, the importance of of how to honor uh, indigenous peoples, uh, you know, the, the the tragedies of the past, but the hope for the future, and also something that could have a kind of a pocketbook approach
0: uh, to voters. Why now, do you think, Christo?
1: Well, you know, I think you know. Strategically, again, you know, in a majority government situation, you've know, you got four years, you know, give or take, uh, to uh, really implement your vision and really try to, one, implement the policy you want to, to, to implement, but also you know, prepare yourself for the next election. And I think in terms of you know, Trudeau generally looking at, well, here are the Truth and Reconciliation Commission recommendations. Uh, we said we'd implement them all. I think he knew that was probably a disingenuous promise. I think it's kind of like his promise on electoral reform. He had no intention of keeping it. But for something like this, it's like, if we're going to do it, we want to do it when people will remember that we did it. And doing it now uh, could have impact in saying that, you know, maybe it'll be in place for 2019, or maybe this could be a talking point as part of his general platform to say, look at what we've done with uh, indigenous peoples over the last four years, and we're committed to do more if you give me another mandate. And I think that's kind of part of the policy, which is similar, maybe some people have said, to the, the question of marijuana, it'll be in the forefront of people's minds in 2019. Whereas if if it happened swifter, he might have gotten credit for his efficiency, but people might have forgotten about it electorally.
0: Hmm. Uh, do you think in any way, Christo, that this is related to the statue debate or controversy that we're seeing across the country of John A. McDonald?
1: I mean, to a certain degree, I think, you know, we, we talk about meanings and monuments and monuments not just as the stone figures or the metal plaques, but, but like what we represent our country through in images. And if you look, one of the factors we do have is, is our statutory holidays. And if you look at what they are, there's some of them that are, that are religiously based within the Christian tradition, like Christmas and Easter. You have some that are based in our kind of secular political traditions, like Canada Day, uh, you know, which represents you know, the state, if you will, our government and our traditions. You have some that are based on other groups um, that have had challenges, for example, Labor Day, which represents the plight of the industrial working class kind of in the late 18, early 1900s, and and what that still means today. So I think in terms of you're trying to provide a diversity of symbols for the country, a new statutory holiday, um, you know, without actually building something, could actually provide a kind of interesting image to Canadians and even to all people who look at, oh, okay, cool! What kind of holidays do they have in Canada? Oh, that's very interesting. They've chosen to make that one of their eight or nine, you know, special days of the year.
0: Um, do you think, by chance, the government saw this meeting, the John A. Macdonald statue debate, was dividing the country? And, you know, for politicians to take a stand on either side of this, it it can be a difficult scenario for them. That being said, uh, this is a solid solution and sort of a way around the debate. Uh, It was just interesting. uh, I believe it was Catherine McKenna came out the other day and said that uh, she agrees with the statues being there. However, also having some sort of balanced approach, some sort of other recognition of the other side of the story.
1: Yeah, I mean, that debate's going to continue. And there's context, you know. For instance, you know, is it one thing to have a statue of McDonald on Parliament Hill versus having schools named after him because the residential schools were such an ugly part? Do we want to have libraries and schools, uh, you know, as tools of education be named after him? Maybe not. But do we want to have government buildings named after him? Maybe that's different. You know, so these debates are going to continue. But you're right in saying that, you know, the, the, the debate is a divisive one. Uh, even if both sides think the other side is wrong. Um, but on this issue particularly, they're bound to have more support. I mean, you might see some pushback from small business groups, and, you know, uh, you know Capital, who who doesn't like the idea of, again, they've fought expansion of vacations for the last 50 years and more. This is something that might not be popular with business, but probably will be popular with the massive majority of working people who, indigenous and settler, are, are the majority of the country
0: of all the indigenous issues out there that are on that uh, Truth and Reconciliation Commission report is, as you mentioned, this certainly isn't one of the biggest. Would the attention be better spent on other ones rather than this, or does something like this draw attention to all of the rest? I mean, that's 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 a really interesting question. I think
1: you know it would probably be best to to ask you know, a a diversity of Indigenous people, because I think they would provide the best answer. I guess from my perspective, you know, yeah, is this more important than ensuring all Indigenous people, really all Canadians, but given the tragedies uh, on many communities, all Indigenous people have access to clean water, I don't think it's as important. Or that, you know, the government, which they've been fighting in the courts their their entire mandate, and Charlie Angus from the NDP has pointed this out multiple times, have been fighting making sure that they have equal educational investment to non-Indigenous children. Those issues are more important. So cynically, you could say, on this particular issue, it's used as a distraction to say, look, we've done this great thing, but the actual big things, the real cost-effective ones, the real things that are going to create precedent, Mm -hmm. um, are things we are fighting and we're really no different than Stephen Harper. But they don't want that to be shown because they really depend on the broad, anything but conservative voters to hold their power. Now, you could also say, as you know, and I think this is not unreasonable, that, you know, the existence of this day could be a continual uh, opportunity to highlight the, the history of Indigenous people and the ongoing struggles. And does that, over the next generation and more, uh, lead to more, grow, uh, more,
0: more uh, you know, rectification of issues? I mean, who knows? Do you think this will fly? Do you think it will happen?
1: I mean, that, I mean, in terms of, you know, if it's a federal statutory holiday, I think, in a sense, the, the government can kind of do what it wants. Um, you know, obviously, a majority government, a strong majority, I don't see the caucus really dissenting over this. Um, so unless they get, you know, a real strong backlash from the public, you know, this will probably happen. You know, I guess some provinces could could tweak their statutory holidays, because not all provinces keep the same statutory holidays. In some provinces, mm-hmm. you know, Remembrance Day is a full-on statutory holiday, and others, you know, it's kind of just understood that, you know, the, the time to uh, attend the ceremony is kind of covered. And some provinces, they have Family Day, and others, they don't. You know, in, you know, in Quebec, they have Chez Jean-Baptiste Day, which is not, you know, a holiday there. So I guess provinces could say, look, we're going to replace a holiday with this national Indigenous one to kind of balance it or something. But I think it probably will pass given again Trudeau does have a mandate for it and it's in a majority government and even still, I think it would probably at least have support from you know the, the some of the opposition parties and maybe even maybe even all of them to a certain degree
0: could this be if it goes through and as you mentioned it most likely will could this be as significant uh a uh, holiday for this generation as Remembrance Day is to a post-World War generation.
1: I mean, that's an interesting point. That's something that and we could speculate now, but you'd almost think you need to go to the future. I think, I think in a sense, Remembrance Day is still very important. Um, but you're right.
0: In and again, not to discredit Remembrance Day no, in any way, no, no, with no, all no, due sure respect, no. yeah. I'm just saying, yeah. I mean, we all know how Remembrance Day has, has in my generation, it was, you, you know, it was sort of post-World War uh, residue. And then, of course, now with, with the, the, the conflict that we're seeing in the world, it has taken on a whole new meaning. So I do not mean to, mean to diminish no. Remembrance Day in any way. Uh, but as far as the impact that it has on people during that day, do you think we could see the same thing with this?
1: I mean, it might be. I mean, you know, like when you see Remembrance Day, you not not just when it was founded, but but again after World War after World War Two, and and you know the, the presence of all the veterans, you know, especially in the earlier years from both World War One and World War Two. Um, you know, we we've lost our World War One veterans, but um, the reality is that that's a significant event, and and it has taken on a new meaning, a new prominence, given you know Iraq and and, and things of that sort. Or, or, sorry, Afghanistan. Uh, excuse me. Um, and, and, and that factor. But um, who knows? I, I think it could have a major effect because I think this is a, bit, a very interesting moment in Canadian history. Uh, if you look even five, ten years ago, um, the, the you know, the plight of indigenous people was not ignored by mainstream society in a full sense, but it was really on the full back burner. And it's really only been in the last few years that it's become a kind of key national debate. Um, and I think that this holiday and its creation could be very important and could be part of the identity of this country, like Remembrance Day is, not just for Indigenous people, but for all Canadians. And it could be uh, you know, quite, an important, um, quite an important hallmark on, on the calendar about what it means to be Canadian.
0: Do you think this is as divisive uh, an issue as, say, the statue debate? How, what are your thoughts on how the public will react?
1: I mean, I don't think it's nearly as divisive. I mean, will it be divisive? You might get, you, again, you might get some opposition from business that doesn't like the idea of any kind of thing that improves kind of standards of living, because again, that's op- that's an opposition to their to their to their goals of maximizing value either for themselves as a small business owner or for their shareholders as a kind of corporate owner, um, but and you might get some opposition from uh, certain types of conservatives who see this as you know a PC kind of approach. You know that the the, the, the the now disgraced professor from Brock University who said that all of this is just pandering to a population that that, you know, doesn't deserve it. You'll have that minor segment, but I frankly don't think this will be nearly as divisive as the statue issue. And, and I think that regardless of what it is, it's just, it's just standard human nature. You know, when the statue issue, it's supposedly about about taking something away, about challenging a person. This is about creating something. So right off the bat, it has a more positive connotation. Uh, so if you're a neutral you're probably just more apt to say, yeah, this is probably okay. This isn't a bad idea, and it's not as if we've created a whole lot of statutory holidays in recent years. If you look at the big ones like Remembrance Day and Labor Day, uh, you know Canada. These are these are old holidays, so it has been a while since there's been a kind of national statutory holiday. So I don't see this one creating a whole lot of groundswell of. You know, anti government, anti indigenous uh, rage, although that will be there.
0: Christo Avalis is with us, Social Sciences and Humanities Research Council, Postdoctoral Fellow in History, University of Toronto. Christo, as always, thanks for the time. Much appreciated.
1: Thanks for having
0: me. You're listening to the Scott Thompson Show podcast on 900 CHML. Canadian coffee uh, chain Second Cup is considering a smoky proposal. The company is considering converting several of its Ontario stores into uh, cannabis retail stores in light of the recent policy changes... That of course have happened in the province uh, as uh, the liberals are out and the PCs are in. PCs, of course, instead of using the LCBO model as the liberals were going to and open 40 stores come October 17th, the PCs have decided they are going to push off the private storefront, or sorry, the storefronts, until April 1st when. The private sector will have a chance to bid on those. The uh, provincial sales will be done through mail order uh, using the same system as the medical cannabis distribution uh, uses. To talk more about all of this, uh, joining us now is Michael Armstrong, of course, from Brock University. We had him on a little earlier this week. He is with us now. Michael, thanks so much for taking the time. We appreciate this.
2: Always a pleasure to chat.
0: Uh, are you surprised that you are now hearing of businesses, private businesses, well, these larger than than I guess what we thought as mom and pop shops? Uh, are you surprised we're starting to see other franchise, uh, other franchisers, show interest in uh, getting a piece of this action?
2: Given that there are 14 million people in Ontario, no, uh, it's the biggest market in Canada. Um, the uh, previous liberal plan of having 40 stores i think is going to get blown out of the water how would the number of thousand sound to you
0: so that being said uh, how was let's talk specifically about second cup how was second cup doing before all of this chatter
2: um i don't uh, have the stats on the coffee chains offhand but uh it's certainly not the dominant chain. Uh, you know, Starbucks is is way up there in terms of the prestige, if you like, uh, brand names, and of course, Tim Hortons is the one we all like to go to every day. Um, so I think it's it, one reason they might be getting into it is they're looking for a way to uh, to get some growth uh, rather than playing sort of second fiddle in the coffee market.
0: Would this be uh, they're, they're thinking of converting some stores? Would this be a do you think a separate entity, or would it be a second cup where you can buy some coffee and some cannabis?
2: Ah, well, there's the big question mark: is what exactly is the Ontario provincial government going to do? So they've said they're going private uh, sector for retail, but there's a lot of uh, different possibilities there. So if you look out west. Um, Manitoba, Saskatchewan, and Alberta have all gone private sector, but they've done it slightly different ways. Uh, Manitoba uh, decided to license a small number of province-wide chains, so they've given authority to four companies or consortia uh, to build chains across the province. Um, Alberta has gone with uh, individual store licenses, and they were originally thinking they might get 250 up in the first year, but by April they already had over 450 applications um some of the companies have got uh those are small independents uh there's a chain called uh, I think it's Fire and Smoke which is looking at uh, it's got 37 licenses and uh good old grocery Loblaw will be uh, opening uh cannabis outlets in some of its stores in Alberta uh Saskatchewan also went private sector individual licenses but they've rationed it a little bit um So, they've awarded 51 licenses across their province.
0: What about cafes? Is there anything in the law, whether it's on a provincial level or if it's on a federal level, that says you can't serve this with any other product? Can you serve it in a cafe style with food, with coffee, that sort of thing? Like, Uh, I mean, you know, coffee, Danish, in your cannabis.
2: So far, none of the provinces have gone that way. Uh, in fact, most of the provinces are restricting cannabis uh, sales to cannabis stores, quote-unquote, to only selling cannabis. Uh, that's, although that's, uh, some provinces are allo- uh, allowing uh, a few other things, none of them are allowing alcohol in the same, quote, store, unquote. Right. However... We now have to start thinking about, okay, what will be a store? Um, so when, w- when we had the previous model, the Ontario Canada Retail Corporation, it was going to be much like the LCBO. It would be standalone stores. Uh, some might be bigger or smaller, but they'd have a fairly wide selection, fairly good-sized stores. Um, but now uh, we could still have those, and that's the kind of thing you might see if uh, Canopy Growth, for example, uh, wants to open stores. But we could also see, um, as if the grocery store, like Loblaw, they're going to be operating cannabis sales, but they're going to set up inside their own stores, just like you have. Uh, you go to your bigger Loblaw stores, you have a uh, might have a wine rack selling wine. Wow! Sometimes have an optician selling eyeglasses. Uh, there's, there's some that have uh, uh, gyms. Some have um, hmm. healthcare, uh, simple clinics, that kind of thing. So you could see a uh, a cannabis shop; it'll be uh, zoned out. It'll be right. uh, well. A good all, example go was the little
0: like, like the wine, the old wine store that you used to see within grocery stores before they started selling it on the shelf, so to speak.
2: That's right. I don't think it'll be like the states where you can uh, go into a grocery store and actually have a wine aisle. It's like any other aisle in the grocery store. It'll yeah. be uh, more like you know here where you have there'll be a separate part of the store. You have to go through a door. Uh, you'll probably have to show ID, but that will be within a larger store. It will probably have a, rel- a relatively smaller selection. Um,
0: that would be fascinating. Oh, look, Mom! There's Mr. Robertson in the pot store.
2: Yes, and it'll be d- probably much like alcohol. Uh, you know, maybe about a generation ago, yeah. when uh, going to LBO was kind of eh, maybe not something you bragged about. Um, <laughs> didn't they want your neighbors seeing you go in there? Uh, Whereas now it's kind of, uh, you know, it's it's an upscale shopping experience almost. That's a valid point. So now coming back to your previous question, will we see a cafe? Um, As I said, none of the provinces have gone that route yet.
0: Because they've often talked about places where you can consume this. There should be lounges, cafes, or something like this, like they have in Amsterdam.
2: Well, and that would be even a further step is... um, so currently the, in other provinces are, are allowing much other than cannabis, although there's a few exceptions in some places. Um, it would be a very easy step to say, well, we'll allow cannabis plus, say, food and coffee, but you can't consume on site. So you'd have, like, the uh, a second cup, or uh, Canopy Growth has their uh, has, has bought control of Haiku, which is setting up coffee shops that it intends to convert. So you'd get a cup of coffee and then buy some cannabis to take home.
0: Um, So, what do you think Second Cups plan is with the current regulation that we have? I guess they will adjust it to each province, but is it a case of, well, we got, say, pull a number out of a hat. We got 50 stores, uh, uh, 30 of them are profitable, the other 20 we're going to convert to something completely different, they will be cannabis stores, or do you think they'll be Second Cup stores that just sell cannabis?
2: That's a good question. I think that's something probably their marketing department is trying to puzzle out right now, is do they want a close association between their coffee brand name and their cannabis brand name? So if uh, an argument in favor would be, okay, Second Cup is already well, totally well known, so you kind of like to have that name on your cannabis shop. On the other hand, you might be concerned that might turn some people off, um, or your family market, if you like, for uh, the cannabis, right. or sorry, for the coffee shops. Uh, so they might want to have a, a little more subtle connection, and it might be, uh, oh, I don't know, make up a name, uh, Canadian cannabis, and then kind of in fine print, buy second cup. Right. Uh, so that people who are, want to make a connection can, but... Um, it won't be nearly as, as blatant.
0: Do you think inside, deep down, uh, what Second Cup is hoping for is coffee and cannabis? That's perfect. It will go together. We just need some way to convince the government to allow, allow that to happen. I mean, is is it, it would be much easier to add the product to a store than create a store for the product.
2: Um, I think that's probably what they like. I think there's uh, several uh, businesses that are, are would like to go in that direction. Um and that, uh, that brings up something else, and that's one, one of the things that's interesting about the delay till spring, which in some respects, for, uh, well, for a lot of consumers and for a lot of producers, that's a disappointment. They have to wait uh, for that to happen. But next year is also when edible products will become legal. So The federal government is legalizing uh, smokable cannabis for this fall, but it won't be until sometime next year. They'll allow things like pot brownies, uh, THC. And, and they will beverages. be
0: sold in the same outlets, correct?
2: So those could be sold in the same outlet, so now that open makes it really easy to just take a small step further and say, well, you can buy a, a THC drink. You can buy a THC brownie or cookie. Um, can we put chairs in there and let people eat them while they're there?
0: I guess that would be the same as setting up a little lounge inside an LCBO. It would be. Um, I don't think that's going to fly.
2: I I don't know. I don't think they'll go to the next step which would be actually allowing smoking cannabis. Yeah. Uh, I mean, we've gone through so much hassle to try and uh, get smoking out of bars and restaurants, for example. Yeah, good point. Uh, I think that'd be, it would just look too much like a step backwards.
0: So how do they, you know what, eventually, though, Mike, it's going to get to that point. It's going to get to that point. How do they, how do they play that? How do, how do they handle that?
2: Well, that is uh, where the politics gets involved, and I would probably want to pass you over to my political science colleagues Uh, because the provincial government, the politicians are going to be talking with their civil service uh, bureaucrats. They'll be talking with industry, Uh, but they'll also be talking with their constituents uh, where you've got, say, the small business people advocating. They want some of the licenses set aside for uh, independent mom-and-pop stores. Uh, Big industry wants this up, you know, 100 stores per brand name uh, across the province. Uh, some of the pharmacies are on the action, but then you've also got more your social conservatives who really aren't happy that is being legalized at all. They'd like to have some restrictions on it, or at least restrict the numbers. Um, so they're going to have to kind of juggle that uh, political balancing act along with the business side. Um, hopefully they can find some reasonable compromise between the two, um, but that's... Uh, what they get paid the bucks for, I guess.
0: Uh, how do you think this is going to play out, especially in the private sector? Is this all just going to be? I think a lot of people thought, especially that had uh, uh, dispensaries now, that this was all just going to be mom and pop kind of, uh, you know, head shops that have been converted. This could n- be nothing like that. How many of the, these will be mom and pop? How many will be the second cups or? Uh, whatever other company wants to jump in. I mean, is this going to be as big and corporate as as anything else, or or will this be more of a grassroots thing?
2: Uh, Again, that depends which way the problem decides to go. Um, But I think certainly in the longer term, uh, think about what else you buy. Uh, If you buy groceries, uh, yes, there are small mom-and-pop convenience-type grocery stores. You have your uh, independent grocer's uh who buy groceries uh, get their supplies from the brand names, but most of us go to the big commercial corporate stores. Um, I think uh that's what you're gonna see dominating the market for the same reasons they dominate that organization dominates other markets, it's efficient, it's effective. Uh you have a recognized brand name, you know you can trust the price you go there. Uh if you have the larger scale you can deliver lower prices. And uh That is going to be an issue because you want to compete with the black market on price. Uh, You want to keep your costs down. So I think you'll see a mix. I think you'll see uh, eventually, not necessarily the initial legislation, but eventually you're going to see a a cannabis uh, section of a grocery store or of a Walmart or a pharmacy. And that's where most people will get kind of their everyday, if that's the right term, cannabis Uh, because it's convenient and relatively cheap. Then you'll have uh, some larger specialty stores, kind of like the LCBO. They might be operated by cannabis uh, growers. And those will be bigger, but they won't be as common. You go there for more variety. You go there for more expert service. Um, And then there'll be the mom and pops who have ambition and maybe they find a little niche. Uh, You know, one of my students has already approached me. He wants to know, be thinking about setting up a store as soon as they become legal. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I'm going to tell them, you know, you got to find something that's going to differentiate yourself. Mm-hmm. So you might find some places that kind of set up as I I don't know a 60s hippie theme. Right. Uh, there'll be some who go more with a cool modern coffee culture uh, mm-hmm. branding, uh, and that's one of the other nice things about going private sector is you'll just have more variety. There'll be more entrepreneurs. More companies trying different approaches, seeing what works best.
0: Michael, are you concerned about a monopoly, that the big companies will just come in, and even any small company that starts or mom-and-pop, they'll get swallowed up because they'll be offered so much money for their location? Are you worried that this is going to turn into like the cell phone industry, where a couple of big players control the whole thing?
2: Um, I don't see it being like the cell phone industry. uh, The technology and the economics there do lend themselves to uh, quasi-monopolies. Uh, But I think, as I say, more like the grocery uh, or more like um, other markets where you would have um, three, six, ten larger uh, corporations that do kind of the bulk of the business. Uh, But then you'll have smaller players serving particular niches or or serving smaller towns. Again, that comes back to what does the government want to do? Uh, Alberta has set a limit: no more than fifteen percent of their licenses can go to any one player, any one corporation. So that uh, allows for at least some uh, variety. Um, uh, so Ontario wanted to go with something like that. Uh, even fifteen percent would would still allow uh, the bigger companies like uh, Aurora Cannabis to have, you know, a hundred stores across the province. Um, I think there's lots of room for, for possibilities. Is I, this, is I think you're going to have, for better or worse, I think you're going to have a lot, of comp- a lot of people start up cannabis shops kind of with big dreams in their eyes. And, like anything, yeah. And then a year or two later, you find out, well, you know, the economics say these aren't all going to survive.
0: Yeah, yeah. Um, it's kind of like when video stores started.
2: Yes, <laughs> like any new industry, we don't really know how big the market yeah. is. We don't really know what's going to work best. People will try different things. Um, we can talk about that in about two years. Uh,
0: as far as second cup, you talked about them. They're a, they're a large player, but they're certainly not up there with the Starbucks and, and the Tim Hortons. Is this low hanging fruit for them? Is this just hey, you know what? We're not making it this way. We got it. This is a quick, easy fix for us.
2: I don't think it's easy. Um, it's a new market. It's a new industry. So there's no established. Uh, leader to compete against. But, well, I
0: guess at the end of the day, it's does, does this come down to a correlation between cannabis and coffee? Um, or is it, can they use the two to market it, each other? Or is it, it's just, well, you know what, we got 50 locations, we're going to just change the storefront to this.
2: Uh, it could be some of both. Uh, if you have some underperforming real estate, uh, here's a new place you can uh, allocate that. Um, that by the way, I think is going to be another attraction of the private sector is all the uh, if you have a thousand stores going up across the province that's a thousand retail leases. Uh, there's going to be a whole bunch of commercial landlords um, you know you might see a shop in the shopping mall
0: and now you know what thank goodness we've got something to do with all that space that we allotted for target stores. <laughs>
2: Yes, and uh, and all the other bricks and mortars stores that are having difficulty these days with facing the Amazons and the Walmarts of the world.
0: You know, a lot of people were complaining about location when we were under the Liberal plan. Now with privatization, like you said, these could be popping up in food courts and shopping malls. Who knows where it's going to pop up? Uh, How is the public going to be with that, do you think?
2: Um, Will, do you think
0: there'll be restrictions? Like, for example, I don't want it in my local mall. Can you see someone saying that?
2: Well, uh, the mayor of Richmond Hills already said he doesn't want it anywhere in his town. Yeah. Um, And uh, it sounds like the provincial government is going to allow municipalities to make that ruling, but uh, people in those municipalities will still be able to buy online from the province. They'll still be able to go to the next town over to buy uh, there was a counselor from uh, Owen Sound in the news, I think, yesterday, yeah. talking about the fact that his municipality his was dry for the longest time, mm-hmm. but it never really was dry because people just got their uh, alcohol by other means
0: where do you see this going do you think that the april first deadline buys the this government some time to figure all of this out really at this point the only thing they're concerned about is duplicating the medical system for october seventeenth and this is something coming but even then i mean it's not that far away
2: it's not that far away um hopefully they don't uh get too bogged down in the consultations. i mean consultations are it's always a good thing to talk to your population ask them what they want but that's not really going to, you know, I don't think that's going to generate any obvious solutions because you're going to have some people advocating lots of stores, lots lots of locations. You'll have some groups saying, no, we really don't want any. Um, Or if we're going to have them, you know, it's got to be somewhere out of of sight, whereas other people say, you know, make it convenient, put it in my grocery store, put it in my shopping mall. So that's, I think, a worthwhile exercise, but uh, at the end of that exercise they're going to have to say okay we have to make a choice here's what we're going to do
0: when do you think we'll know more because even if businesses want to do this by april 1st they've still don't have much time to set up shop
2: no they don't um what uh you know just as a ballpark you say sort of say you know before the christmas holidays uh it would be nice if the province could have its uh not necessarily the detailed legislation but at least its framework all laid out so uh, businesses have at least a few months uh, to actually go through the application process because, again, if, uh, depending on what the province chooses for licensing, you have to go through the, whatever the application is. Now, it might be a simple, okay, fill up this form. As long as you, uh, say, you don't have a criminal record and meet some other requirements, yes, you're approved, in which case the licensing could be really quick. If it's uh, like Saskatchewan where they said, okay, we don't want more than a certain number of stores in Regina, more than a certain number of Saskatoon and they actually ration the licenses, that's going to take more time and the government has to allow for that. So the more restriction they want, uh, the sooner they have to make up their mind.
0: Hmm. Michael Armstrong has been with his Ph.D. Associate Professor, Goodman School of Business, Brock University. Michael, thanks for the time and insight. Much appreciated.
2: Sure, it's been fun to chat. You're listening to the Scott Thompson Show
0: podcast on 900 CHML. China has a problem of its own creation. The population is aging and there aren't enough kids. The country's one-child policy of the past has created a future labor shortage where there are not enough young workers to replace the existing workforce as it retires. While the country has a pension surplus, it may turn into a deficit if there isn't enough labor in the market to support the changing society. To talk more about all of this, Young Kai is with us, associate professor of sociology, University of North Carolina's Carolina. Population Center, and is with us now. Young, thanks for taking the time. We appreciate this.
3: Thanks for having me.
0: It wasn't that long ago we were talking about China's one baby policy. What's different now? What has changed?
3: Okay, so right now the current policy is that China allows every couple to have two kids. And the discussion right now at this moment is that China is anticipated to further relax or maybe make a hundred eighty-degree turn to encourage people to have more kids, but we still don't know exactly what will come up.
2: What about
0: the one-child policy? When did that start?
3: The one-child policy started at, uh, in 1979-1980. The exact time is a little bit, you know, uh, not that clear, but that started around, around that time.
0: And what was the purpose of that decision back then?
3: So the purpose is interesting, you know, yes, it was to control population, but, you know, the, the more specific the purpose was actually to develop the economy. The, for the purpose of developing the economy, China said, hey, we want to quadruple our GDP in 20 years. The only way to achieve that at a time by the, some calculation was to control the population within 1.2 million, and they will further calculate that. The only way to achieve that was to only limit one couple, uh, one child per couple.
0: How does that increase the economy? You
3: know, the idea was if you want to in, uh, uh, quadruple the GDP by simple, some simple calculation, you would have to limit the population growth because it's the numerator, denominator. Uh. per capita means <laughs> you need a few people in the denominator.
0: So at, this is all an accounting error? I mean, it has, it, it, it's all about numbers?
3: Yes, it's a number game, and the calculation was done by some rocket scientists. Uh,
0: okay, now this question, young, could they not see this coming with such policy? I mean, uh, could could they not see the future by trying to control this?
3: Oh, there are m- many demographers have been warning this for decades, and you know exactly at the time of this uh, policy, you know, one time policy inception of the implementation. The demographers, you know, like, you know, Liang Zhongtang, have been warning, say, hey, this is coming. You know, all the problems we are facing now, we are seeing now, were anticipated. And even the Ch- Chinese government at the time acknowledged the future was, you know, they knew what was coming. But at the time, they say, hey, let's tie our group and, you know, make a collective sacrifice for the country's future.
0: So was there any benefit of the one-child policy even back then?
3: Well, oh, you know, I think uh, speaking in the short term, they, yes, they are. You know, just think about within a family, if we suddenly have fewer few kids, you know, uh, you know, families with smaller family size have more resources to concentrate into their kids' education and all the other things, and you have free up labor force. You know, we, uh, demographers or economics call that as demographic dividend. Yes, yeah, there are short-term gains, but, you know, they you know, be long-term pains.
0: When did China realize that this was going wrong? That this was not going to work?
3: And you know, I think, and you know, many experts have been warning the Chinese government for decades. And but the, the, for whatever reason, the Chinese government was very reluctant to act on. So you know, as early as 2000, we sent in proposals, to say, "Hey, it's time to change." And the, the you know the, the bad things are coming, and it's so obvious. But for whatever reason, the government said you know they try to kick the can down the road. Uh,
0: we we remember and know and have heard lots about the one-child policy, and then that being expanded. Uh, what about gender? How has this? How has this uh, altered ge- the gender demographic in the country?
3: So the gender demographic, because Chinese has traditional uh, of, preferring a son to carry the family lineage and uh, mm-hmm. in an uh, agricultural economy, you know, there are certain jobs probably easier done by males because it's if it's not mechanized in certain areas. So that was a tradition and when this policy came out, lots of people opted for a technology called the ultrasound machine that was actually introduced to check the uh the the, 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 the some, some birth control uh uh Method and uh, people opted for uh, selective abortion, Mm -hmm. and the sex ratio was totally skewed. For you know, by nature, the at birth was roughly one or five boys per hundred girls, Mm -hmm. and in certain areas in China and in certain years, the ratio was went up all the way to hundred fifty or even two to one.
0: I remember a decade, maybe a couple of decades ago, there an influx of uh of 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 Chinese girls up for adoption in this country uh, because of that very reason. Uh, I, I can think of at least two two acquaintances that I know who have at least one had adopted at least one Chinese female baby. is uh, has, has that has that tapered off now as a result oh, that's, of this? That,
3: that's that's totally tapered off. So yeah. at a time, that was, you know, you know, that was mainly in the 1990s. There were lots of baby girls being abandoned, mm-hmm. and, uh, you know, people from United States, Canada, some Western uh, European countries went to adopt Chinese girls. And uh, later on, this source actually is drying up, you know, in, in, at the same, you know. There are all kinds of scandals around the way at the same time, but overall, demographically speaking, there's not enough baby in China.
0: So, but uh, that being said, uh, it's an issue of not enough kids. Is it an, also an issue that there's too much of one gender? It, has that happened?
3: So the one gender thing has been dying down. People realize the problem. And, right. uh, yeah, so select, selection is coming down. Uh,
0: but, but I understand that the, pro- the process and the procedure is coming down, but do you still have a segment of the population where there's still too many males and not enough females? Oh, yeah, females?
3: yeah, yeah. Will so that happen? Some- by some calculation, they are, you know, if we want to reach the balance, that should be roughly 100 boys per 100 girls. But in China, the in that younger generation born in uh, late 1980, all the way to early uh, 21st century, that entire generation has roughly 30, 20 to 30 million so-called surplus males. and nobody can solve that problem.
0: No. Um, will what they are doing now solve the problem? Is this, is this a train wreck waiting to happen? What can they do?
3: You mean the sex r- ratio thing or the, the, the baby shortages?
0: Let's go with both. Give us an opinion okay. on both.
3: So the, the sex ratio has been you know, coming down to close, getting close to the natural level, and that is happening naturally. People realize the value of girls, and uh, they are no longer going to the extreme. And at the same time, the government is allowing people to have a second child. That you know, some people prefer girls, or you know, if they have already have a boy, they go for girls. So that is already happening, and uh, it will be a you know gradual, slow process. But it's in the right direction in terms of fertility. Chinese government, you know, certain local government already put out a certain initi- uh, initiatives like using cash incentive, you know, cert- uh, those kind of program to encourage people to have a second child. And with right now the discussion is to allow people even to have a third child, or maybe. But you know, but at the same time, the are, area in China still try to collect fines, try to fine people with the third a third child.
0: What is, how does society in China view all of this? What is their reaction to this?
3: The reaction is quite, you know. Baffled, I would say. Mm. On one hand, you feel the uh, a little bit, of, you know, space for breathe, you know, so more uh, flexibility. At the same time, the current way of discussion, you know, uh, by Chinese government, basically encourage people to have more babies. Again, for the collective benefit, mm. and that kind of talk, I think, it put a lot of people off. And right now, there are proposals on the table. Say, hey, we should. Uh, you know, collect money. Basically, if you don't have kids, we are going to, you know, basically pay into some kind of uh, state managed fund to help pay for, uh, let's say, uh, childcare and other things. And people are not happy with that kind of discussion.
0: Um, are males and females considered equal because of the one baby rule and the result that that ma- there were more males kept than females? Uh, and and you know you talked about uh, gender abortion and such. Is there a perception in China that males are more valuable than females?
3: Uh, you know, more and more so, especially in urban area, women are taking up you know all kinds of. Uh uh, administrative roles, and uh, they are you know being entrepreneurs. They have a lot of opportunities. So it, yes, increasingly they are being more equal. But they are in certain area, in certain you know part of China, the stereotype, the the, the family lineage, all those things, the tradition dies slowly. You know, it will not go away overnight. How so
0: do, how does yeah. the how does the Chinese population feel about? The fact that this has changed so much, like even over, you know, if you're if you're a young couple and you're starting a family, uh, the rules have changed over time. Uh, how do they feel about, you know, at one time it was one only and then the gender specific and, and, and now it's gone to two. And how do they feel about the government deciding that for them?
3: You know, I think people are not as clear and not happy. This is probably most private part of our individual life decisions among Mm -hmm. anything and when someone come to tell you he can only have one and now they try to nudge you you say hey it's time to have two that's certainly not a very welcome uh you know process Hmm. yeah so i i would you know uh, encourage the chinese government to think the other way you know give people the freedom let them decide
0: it, it, is the population situation so out of hand that this has to be monitored the way that it is? Or is it just, so, is it societal engineering?
3: Yeah, it's a social engineering. You know, this is a, it's a social engineering mentality has been going on for at least half a century. And, uh, it's, and it's, you know, this kind of process is also addictive. You know, government has a lot of, more power than any other Western government. Right.
0: Uh, yeah. what, about, what about immigration? Is that the answer? I mean, here in Canada, often, you know, I mean, we have a bigger country than we do population. Uh, we encourage immigrants to help uh, again for the same reasons as China. Just the demographic is getting older. Can that help in any way? Is that even an option?
3: You know, I don't think that would be an option for a country like China. China's Chinese population, 1.4 billion. Yeah. And, uh, you know, yes, there are already immigrants going to China, I- even from Canada, from the United States, and more from Africa and other you know Southeast A- Asian countries. But uh, anything, so for example, we, we talk about you know, 30 million surplus Chinese male, and they are, you know, migration, international migration related to marriage. Mm. But, you know, even if you pull all the girls from those small countries, uh, that won't solve the problem.
0: So where is this going, young? How big a problem is this for them for the future?
3: You know, for the future, it's very clear. China has to, you know, uh, uh, to face up with this. You know, the 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 gain over the last forty, fifty years in terms of demographic gain has to be paid out. You know, the the aging is going to be accelerating, and the Chinese, you know, for example. Uh, the labor short, you know, the labor force structure will be very different. For example, currently, the the 2224, 20 the young labor force has, you know, declined roughly 20 some percent over the last, you uh, know, decade. That's basically is the number of people born 20 years ago, and we won't, China won't be able to solve this problem by having more babies right now because those babies will not come into labor force 20 until Mm. twenty years later. Mm. So, in between, China will have to come up with some kind of interesting policy change, especially in the area of uh, pension system, you know, healthcare system, because people are living longer and, yes, living healthy, but, you know, with all kinds of complications. And China also have very interesting retirement system. Women retire at age 55,
0: Mm.
3: and male retire at age 60. And China, you know, one Probably easy, but it's not going to be popular. A fix is to raise the retirement age.
0: What's the chance of that happening?
3: And it will happen, but uh, you know, I, 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 don't think it will happen next year or the year after. Most likely, when the government treasury is running a large deficit, when they run out of money. Life in China
0: always a mystery to us here in the West. What is our biggest misconception about China?
3: You know, I think relate to all those things what we discussed. For example, the fertility decline was not really an effect of the one-child policy. That's a, a huge mystery. So, fertility so, decline happened before the one-child policy, before nineteen seventy-nine.
0: So, is this just an aging population, not the one-child policy?
3: So, you know, there. Are, there is, so, you know, one thing is China is not alone in this. So, what we demographers yep. call this as demographic transition. You know, In almost everywhere in the more developed part of the world, women are having fewer kids. Yeah. You know, Canada is not is 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 not that different. Yep. And you know, even you know, actually, you can look at a statistic about the uh, Chinese in, in Canada. They are not having that many kids. Hmm. Roughly one point six ish. yeah.
0: So will this become a worldwide problem for countries moving forward as the population ages and people have fewer kids in, in, in all corners of the world?
3: Yeah, yeah. I think it, it is happening in West Europe. Certainly in, in the modernized uh, countries. Europe, yeah, in, yeah. in in modernized countries. You know, so the world is in, in a, a kind of bifurcated process in, you know, uh, Africa and the least developed part of the world. Sure. You know, fertility is still very high and lots of effort is put into, hey, let's... Uh, control fertility. Yeah, because you know the world's world's population is still growing. And the fact is that Chinese population is still growing.
0: Good point. Young Kai has been with us, associate professor of sociology, University of North Carolina's Carolina Population Center, talking about the demographics of China and the rest of us. Young, thanks so much for the time and insight. Much appreciated. Thanks for having me. The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to three on nine hundred CHML.